What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these indie hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. One of the best ways to build a successful business as an indie hacker is to teach people a valuable skill that you know. In fact, I just looked at the last 50 episodes I've recorded and about half of them, 25, were educators, which is actually way more than I expected. So in this episode, I sat down to talk to two of the best educators that I know. Daryl Silver is the founder of Thinkful, an online learning service that's helped thousands of students get high-paying jobs in tech. He sold his company for $100 million in 2019. And Quincy Larson is the founder of Free Code Camp, one of the most impressive projects on the internet that I personally really look up to. This is his second time on the show, so if you haven't heard his story, go check out episode number 56, I believe. Free Code Camp has helped over 40,000 people learn to code and get jobs at tech companies, and Quincy has done this all as a nonprofit, so it's quite different than Daryl's approach. In this episode, we talk about uh, the future of education. It's changing rapidly with so many people coming online and so much new technology being invented, so we get into some of the best ways for indie hackers to get started as educators. We talked about the money side of things and the economics behind an education business, uh, how much money is too much, you know, how much money should you be charging students, and how do you run a nonprofit as successfully as Quincy has, and why would you even do that in the first place. And we also talked about the difference between educating kids who, quite frankly, we just want to basically sequester away somewhere and take up as much time as possible so parents can get work done, and educating adults who are really trying to spend as little time as possible in the education phase so they can go out and get jobs. Enjoy the episode. I'm curious, Dara, what makes you so bullish on free code camp? I mean, there's so many different ways to learn to code. I've taught people how to code like in person, one on one, and that was kind of cool, but there's obviously some drawbacks. There's this whole new like ISAs model where people are doing that. There's the traditional coding boot camps and computer science educations. Free code camp is one of my favorite websites on the internet. I think it's super cool. It's inspiring in a lot of ways, but I'm curious like why, you know, with the world changing so much and there being like so many different ways to learn, like why free code camp? There are a lot of different ways to learn how to code and there's a lot of different ways to learn how to get a job and Thinkful represented or represents one path uh, for people that want a lot of support in a, in a, like an online classroom kind of environment. But Free Code Camp, I think of as a nonprofit unicorn and it's run by 12 people full time with a massive number of volunteers. So 12 people is smaller than Instagram was in terms of full time staff when it was acquired by Facebook for a billion dollars. So Free Code Camp is a true unicorn. It, it delivers an incredible product, incredible community, incredible leader, tiny team, tiny budget. And nonprofit in this context really only means not going to create any new oligarchs when it continues to grow. Quincy, why don't you want to become a new oligarch? Why be a nonprofit? So I, I think becoming like an oligarch, which is very like pejorative term for like a really wealthy, powerful person. Uh, I don't want to imply that like I'm against people being wealthy. Uh, you know, I, I think there's probably natural limits to how wealthy people can practically get before, you know, that wealth could be better <laughs> distributed some other ways. But I personally, uh, I'm a simple man. I like to go for runs. I like to play with my kids. As long as I've got like health insurance, which I have through Obamacare, thank thankfully, as long as I, I have a house, which uh, we, we've got a mortgage on this house here in Dallas that's in a really good school district. We have good schools, 
good public schools that we can send the kids to. My needs are met. And yeah, if I had like dramatically more money than I have right now, I'd probably just give it away. So why bother getting all that money if I can, instead of having the distraction of trying to accumulate wealth, just focus on kind of giving now? Yeah, it's interesting because like, I mean, obviously a lot of people who come on the show are starting companies and like there's usually like some amount of financial motivation, but like as a means to an end. And typically what that is for like most founders that I've talked to, especially indie hackers who are like bootstrapping is like personal freedom. And so a lot of the stuff that you're talking about, like, you know, you've got your kids, you've got like your hobbies and things that you want to do, go for runs. People are just like, yeah, I want to be able to do that, but I want to be able to do that forever without working for the man <laughs> and doing my own thing. And in a way, I guess you've got yourself in a situation where you can do that forever by working for yourself. Like you are the man in your own life. And so like, why go further? Daryl, I'm kind of curious about your take on this whole thing. I mean, you like have obviously like had some big acquisitions and like I checked your website, you know, you're doing things like building a wood shop with your father and you're like working with like political campaigns and donating to free code camp. And so I guess I'm just curious about like your take on personal finances and like goals in life and how that changes with, with money. Money is a perfectly fine motivation. And I think when you start to earn a salary for the first time in your first job, you think, wow, this is amazing. I can afford so much. I'm, I'm doing so well now. And then you fast forward like a year or two later and it turns out uh, you say, wow, I really just need that one more promotion and I'll be able to get that next thing. Right. And like you, you start to, you level set at whatever number you're at. And what I discovered with Thinkful is the power of helping people achieve that next level of wealth for themselves is actually just really, really fulfilling. And uh, I didn't know this until we exited Thinkful, but the impact of exiting Thinkful, it had no impact on my happiness. You know, I was doing fine. Like I had a, a married and been in the same relationship for 14 years and I live uh, in New York and, I, and we live in a place we want to stay living in and, you know, all these things. And when you experience eight years of seeing people advance their career and thanking you or even better, thanking the people that you hired or put in place in different roles and you get to experience that day to day and then it stops because you end that job but you have a bigger bank balance, you think, well, gee, that, that bank balance didn't really make me happier, but it did, it did actually uh, deliver all these experiences for people. So, so that was a pretty big impact. And I think it was a big impact for me personally. What, what was really interesting, I didn't realize that was happening until I saw the look of shock on people's faces when I told them that. I would have like, and you don't meet anybody in person this year, but you'd have a video call with someone and I'd say, yeah, like it's kind of the same. Everything's the same. We're still living in the same place. We're still going to do the same thing and like whatever. Our expenses will will tick up like a little bit, but but they were like shocked. You're like, really? It's not happier. And then you look up the research, and it turns out the research agrees with you too. You reach a certain level of income relative to your cost of living in whatever city or or personal circumstances, which can vary dramatically. Your happiness doesn't improve with wealth. And so there's nothing wrong with 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 being motivated by money, but it is never the goal. And, and when I would, and then I kept pulling the thread on this, and I could talk for an hour about just this topic, but I kept pulling the thread on this particular thing, asking other entrepreneur friends I had known who had had like really big exits, and I kept getting pointed back to the same Maslow's hierarchy of needs research, which was basically like, you are now free to have self-actualization, you are now free to uh, achieve the things that you were put on this earth to do, in your own opinion, and without other people's encumbrances. And it turns out when you meet people like Quincy who basically did that without the decade of working, they can skip all those steps and, and reach a lot of the same fulfillment uh, and build something that outlasts them and is bigger than them. Quincy Larson, skipper of steps. But I, I like your take a lot. I was, um, I moved to Boston like 10 years ago for college, I guess 15 years ago, I'm old. And 
I got like a new Boston phone number, and I don't know whose phone number I inherited, but like she apparently had a lot of debt, because I would get a lot of debt collectors calling, and I get all these like text messages from people in Nigeria, and like one day I just started like responding to a guy, and he was like WhatsApping me, it was a Nigerian like uh, phone number, and I was talking to this guy, and like all he wanted to do was come to America. Like, that was it. He was like, what can I do? I was like, oh, well, like, maybe you can learn how to code, do this. He's like, I don't want to do that. Like, maybe I can join your military, et cetera, et cetera. And, like, we talked for, like, I don't know, maybe half an hour. And I was kind of learning about him. But, like, I think I came away from that conversation with, like, dang, like, the thing that I take for granted every single day is, like, the thing that is this guy's number one goal in life. Like, he cares about nothing else. And I think in a way, when people are shocked to hear that, like, oh, so-and-so got super rich and nothing has changed in their life, it's kind of the same phenomenon where it's like, actually, you can really easily acclimate to this thing that someone who doesn't have it really puts on a pedestal. So it resonates with me. So let's talk about this Quincy guy that everybody loves. I'm super impressed by Free Code Camp for all sorts of reasons. I think the mission is super cool. I know a lot of people who've learned to code from Free Code Camp. And I think like just as like a founder trying to achieve goals, in a way, even though our websites are very, very different, a lot of what you've already accomplished, like I'm trying, I'm like pushing hard to try to accomplish. For example, I'm trying to grow the Indie Hackers mailing list. And I'm looking at companies like Morning Brew and The Hustle, which are like pure newsletter companies. They exist to do nothing but grow their newsletters. And they're like one and a half million subscribers, two million subscribers. It's a big deal. And then you're like, oh, yeah, we've got four million subscribers <laughs> for free code camp. You know, and like that's like a, an afterthought for you. You're doing you're trying to like focus on teaching. You know, your newsletter is very good, but it's like that's crazy to me. You know, uh, you're publishing like 20 like super high quality articles a week. You're amazing in like SEO. Uh, and then like your stats on just like how you're teaching people and like the amount that like $1 can get in terms of like how many minutes somebody actually spends learning is like mind blowing and almost seems like unrealistically great. So I guess, how do you do it, Quincy? Like what, what's the deal here? How does free code camp work? Enlighten us as to how like this is so amazing because it, it is. That's like one of the big things about free code camp is like we're very privileged in that we, we have a lot of different angles we could go in, uh, a lot of different directions, but we, we try to be very disciplined about what we can realistically do over a longer period of time. And I think patience would be like the, the key word. And it may sound like I'm kind of a brat, like talking about patience when we're only like a six-year-old organization. But if you look at like the YMCA, if you look at like the Red Cross, if you look at Doctors Without Borders, like all these great NGOs, all these great nonprofits that have cropped over up over the past uh, 200 years or so, but the organization is bigger and, and more ambitious than ever. And it's because they've just been slowly compounding momentum over a long period of time. If you think about literacy, we still have a long way to go. Even here in the developed destination of many aspiring Americans, right? And I feel like it's going to take probably hundreds of years to get everybody up to where they can do basic programming and all that stuff. Just like it's taken hundreds of years to get even close to like 99% literacy in the United States. Yeah, so so it, it's a long mission, and in technology, everything's like now, now, now. Things are changing so quick, and everything. But but the more things change, the kind of the more they stay the same. Fundamentally, it's it's just people trying to acquire skills and trying to apply those skills. So yeah, <laughs> there's like a Jeff Bezos quote about change or something, and somebody asked him like, you know, what are you betting on that's going to change? And he's like, no, we bet on like what's going to stay the same. You know, we're not trying to be super complex. We look at like what's kind of true about human nature and then like we want to improve in that area, but like we're not making these super risky bets of like this is everything's going to change the next day. And I think with Free Code Camp, like it's quite obvious that like people are always going to want to like improve their skills and be able to level up so they can get better jobs and improve like the quality of their life. Like that's why would that ever change, you know? And as long as like software engineering is a thing that's like lucrative and fulfilling, people are going to need something like Free Code Camp. 
And why do you think free code camp works so well? What are you doing that other people didn't do? I, I think there's something to be said for being completely free. People do like free stuff. And the, the fact to remember is about half the people on earth live off less than $5.50 a day. Those people who are living off $5.50 a day, they probably shouldn't be spending money on like, you know, coding courses, in my humble opinion. They should probably be spending money on, you know, essential day-to-day -day items and food and shelter and things like that. So the fact that it's free does open it up to a huge number of people. And only about 30% of people who use free code camp are here in the U.S. Most of it's abroad. And a lot of it's in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and Europe. I, I bet you if you were to look at the average per capita income of people in the free code camp community, not the developers that are just upgrading their skills, which is about two about one third of the people are just working developers continuing their education. But the two thirds who are entering the field, it might be like $10,000 a year or something like that. It, it, would, it would not be like even close to the median US household income of like $50,000. So free is a huge aspect of it. And I'm not going to deny it. there are tons of great, free, great learning resources, some of which are also free. But I think in terms of Resources for learning the code, uh, free code camp is a very good one. And the fact that it's free immediately makes it accessible to many people who would not otherwise be able to do it. Another thing is just that it's completely interactive for the most part. Like the, the curriculum, you've got a tight feedback loop. Uh, we run the tests client side generally. So there's not even like a, a back and forth to a server somewhere. Uh, so, so you can fire up the browser. You can go in and you could be learning JavaScript or learning Python within a few seconds really and you don't have to configure a development environment you don't have to go and like clone a bunch of github repos just the the number of steps is so much smaller and that and that feedback loop is so key uh if you think about going to like a university class you might you might get a little bit of feedback on the midterm as to how you're doing right uh maybe maybe you're lucky you go to office hours and a teacher like has you do something on the board and it's like no that's not right try this you know that but the 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 feedback is very coarse. You're certainly not getting feedback on your work within a few milliseconds, but that's that's how it works on FreeCodeCamp. Like you're constantly getting feedback from the interpreter. So basically the reason this podcast is happening is because occasionally you'll ping me on Twitter and you're like, hey, Cortland just heard you know, the episode with the guy from Famous Birthdays. I thought it was great. Uh, or hey, Cortland, I heard whatever episode, cool episode. I'm like, hey, Quincy, you know, how's it going? And we'll catch up. But this last time, it was a little bit more involved. You're like, hey, by the way, like, we we're like, we've got this cool new thing, this whole new curriculum. Like, what do you think? You know, and I kind of like told you what I thought, and we kind of went back and forth. Uh, I'm just curious, like, what was going through your head? You know, when you messaged me, like, what's new at Free Code Camp? What did you want to talk about? One of the reasons we're really excited is because uh, Daryl is supporting Free Code Camp, and he has agreed to do donation matching for a large amount of money, $150,000. To put things in perspective, Free Code Camp's uh, budget in 2020 was $498,000. So essentially, with this fundraiser that, that Daryl is helping us do, uh, where we're trying to raise $300,000 and Daryl is essentially going to match all donations up to $150,000, 100%. So if we can get half of it from Daryl and half of it from the developer community, then we're going to be able to fund the development of this math and machine learning curriculum, a data science curriculum, that teaches like all this stuff that you would learn if you were to like go get a graduate degree at you know Stanford and focus on uh, machine learning things like that. Not necessarily all. It's not necessarily like a one to one uh, matching of what you would learn, but what we perceive to be kind of like the low hanging fruit 
and, and the fundamentals that you would need to be able to go out and work as a data scientist or a machine learning engineer. So uh, that's that's one of the big things that's going on right now. And one of the reasons, like in the most recent exchange, I was like, hey, are you interested in this? Like, would this be of interest to the community? Yeah, it was very pretty inspiring to hear you talk about basically the donations. So like, maybe share some of the numbers around how much basically learning is accomplished on FreeCodeCamp for people donating money. Because it's kind of blew my mind to hear this. Yeah, at that previous budget, $498,000 for 2020, we delivered, I think, 1.3 billion minutes of learning, which translates to about 2,500 years of learning. Right now, if you're listening to this, there's probably about 2,500 people currently using FreeCodeCamp, like logged on. <laughs> That's like what, like thousands of minutes of learning per dollar or something? Yeah, it, so it's the equivalent of 50 hours of learning per dollar spent. So we have about 7,000 people who donate $5 a month. Every person who's giving $5 a month, that means they're providing essentially 2,000 or 250 hours of learning to people around the world. And it's it's a very abstract way of link, think of it because that goes to servers, that goes to staff, that goes to, to like all the different things that we need to be able to design instructional resources, you know, free learning resources that people can then use um, to advance their skills. So Daryl, you've, you've written about your thoughts on education before running Thinkful. I, I found something where you sort of your self-professed beliefs were that adult education has to be accountable for student outcomes and needs to be low risk and incredibly affordable, which is not too different than free code camp. I mean, you don't get much more affordable than free. What's the story behind sort of like your convictions on, on how people should learn and how you sort of injected that into Thinkful? It's a great question. The, the biggest revelation I think we had at Thinkful around the pedagogy was the idea of classroom hours, which in most education that you've been in or that I've been in and then Americans have been in, it's it's you start in kindergarten or thereabouts and you go in a classroom a certain number of hours, you take a few tests to make sure you're not falling too far behind, and then at the end of it, you get some sort of diploma or degree. And that goes all the way through young adulthood uh, and for some people far beyond young adulthood. Now, what we said, what we noticed at Thinkful was People, adults are not looking for a degree, they're looking for a job. And, you know, just side note, it becomes, it's sort of obvious that college students, about 86% of college students are also, they don't really care about the degree, they're just going to college to increase their income. So it turns out as an adult, you may have spent your entire life in measuring education through classroom hours and test scores, but actually you want to spend your education time as efficiently as possible. You're looking for the fastest route from deciding that you want a job to getting that job. And so the more hours you spend in a classroom learning, the worse. And that's the opposite of all uh, education you'll have received up until that point. And so we knew when we, when we started that we had this long kind of cultural change that has to be happening in order for Thinkful to be successful, which is people have to, employers mostly, recognize that you have to hire someone based on the skill they gain, they have, and they can do on the job instead of the number of classroom hours or diplomas they gained. And so programming and software engineering was the earliest of those kinds of skills, and that spreads to a lot of other skills. But fundamentally, adults are looking for the fastest, cheapest way to go from the job they have to the career they want. And every time we thought about classroom hours, we found ourselves failing. And every time we thought about, well, what does this person really need to pass this interview to get this job? We succeeded. Um, we would have these incredibly... Uh, I found them sort of funny, but they're but they were kind of painful in a lot of ways. Interviews with potential job candidates or with members of our community who would tell us about the stuff that we 
must cover in the curriculum for our students. So if you're teaching Python, you must cover uh, different libraries or different different uh, paradigms or, or strongly typed versus not strongly typed, you know, all these different differences that you see across languages. And our head of education will say, well, that stuff isn't being asked in the interview and it's not being, it's not something you're going to find useful in the first three months of your job. Why do we need to teach it? And the person would say, inevitably, if you don't understand the difference between X and Y, then you can't really be a programmer. So we're not trying to make you a programmer. We're trying to make you an employed software engineer. Like, let's figure out what it takes to get you employed. And if that's on the list, we'll teach it. We'll spend your time and money on it. And if it's not on the list, let's cut it. We would have, and, and this is still true, I think, today and Thinkful, you can see it, it's all public data. We celebrated the number of graduate people that would get a job before graduation. It would mean less money for the business, but it meant they were achieving that goal faster with fewer classroom hours. And that was the whole point to go from the job you had to the career you wanted. When we were acquired, uh, I adopted very quickly one of the, line, one of the lines of, of Chegg's leadership, which was accelerate the path from learning to earning. And it turns out that's just this incredibly powerful concept that that the undercurrent that goes throughout all of uh, adult education, which is you just want to go a faster route from learning to earning. One of the, I think, important things about education from my vantage point as an indie hacker is that a lot of people who are trying to start businesses uh, have sort of hit on the fact that teaching people to do something is one of the easiest and most successful ways to get started when you don't have a lot of resources and all you really have is knowledge don't have a lot of connections. Like you can start a business teaching and helping people do something and actually like earn your freedom as an indie hacker and like do good for the world. And it's, it's just one of these like ideal sort of ways to get started. David Perel had a really good tweet about the future of education. It was a huge Twitter thread. And I kind of want to go through it and get you guys takes uh, because you're educators. I am in sort of a way, but like through you, I'm not teaching anybody, but I have people like you on the show and you can teach people about how you're doing things. He had like, I think 12 points or something. We're only going to go through like a few of them. One of them was that he said in the future, teaching will become an extremely lucrative profession. Salaries will follow a power law. The best teachers will make millions of dollars per year and teach thousands of students per year. Quincy, what's your thoughts on that? You're already seeing that to a good extent. Like there are teachers who have like their own course platforms, like West Boss is a great example. Uh, if you're familiar with him, he's this Canadian developer who's exceptionally good at teaching. And he, uh, he's built like his entire teaching infrastructure and he's not really beholden to anybody. You know, he, he codes his own platform and his own checkout and everything. He just releases a lot of free courses and then he'll release paid courses as well. And I, I have no idea how much money he makes. So I don't know if he would share that amount, but I estimate it's, it's a lot. Another person like David Malin, uh, who teaches CS50 at Harvard, he is about as rock star as you can be as a teacher. There's even like people within the Freeco Camp community. Uh, Estefania, she's a prolific author within the Freeco Camp community and has created lots of courses. She, she's based in Venezuela, um, but she has a Spanish language Python course on YouTube. And she's made a lot of money on Udemy, for example. So a lot of people are using the existing platforms and then a lot of people will, will self-host or they'll create their own tools. But I think that the, like that time has absolutely already arrived where... I mean, you could you could look at like Carl Sagan. You could look at Bob Ross. There are lots of examples of people who have been prolific kind of mass market teachers. As a matter of fact, jump in there. David Perel is an honorable man, but I'm a little underwhelmed by the premise there. I mean, in, in 2011 and 2012, when MOOC started taking over education dialogue about the future of education, it was exactly this model. 
that you can record the best lecture in artificial intelligence and make it available to millions and then the very, very tiny number of teachers who do well on video and who do well with high production, they can make a lot of money. And then in the intervening decade, well before this Twitter thread from, 20, from a year ago, 2020, uh, companies like Teachable or Thinkific are creating platform, and Udemy as well is doing it, creating platforms that allow teachers to gather a huge amount of demand, charging a low or high dollar amount per set, sold course, but create the power law that you're describing in education. So it's not a new concept. It's been around for the better part of a decade. And the idea that teaching will be lucrative overall is probably very misleading in my opinion. Yes, you will have celebrities, and you already have celebrities making millions, a very small number, just like celebrities, a very small number of actors making millions. Most teachers will not. Most teachers will remain employed by the public school system in various ways with complex mechanics and unions. Um, most students need a lot more than a video. And the reason that I interject so harshly, uh, not that harshly, frankly, but the reason that I want to interject really harshly with this Dave Perel message is when people describe making a lot of money from education, it's extraordinarily easy for them to get suckered into charging a lot of money for education. And when you charge a lot of money for education, you basically remove one of the reasons that education exists, which is to allow uh, social mobility because people can't afford to spend $5,000 or $500 or $50 on a class. Uh, and so video provides a way to, to give you know, zero marginal cost distribution to content, but the effort of teaching, the effort of sitting with a student and having them learn something because they were able to ask a question and get an answer in the language they understood in that moment in an environment that they were comfortable in, that remains an enormous challenge and it's misleading at best to say that, that teachers doing that kind of job are going to be making a lot of money because if they do, it means that only rich people are going to be able to afford to pay them. Right. For any hacker starting businesses, they do tend to go that high, high revenue, like making it very expensive route. So let's say you're like a, you know, you're a software engineer and you decide you want to quit your job and start a new company and you're going to bootstrap it and you don't have funding and you want to sell a course online. It's really hard to get to the point where you're making a living if you're educational material is super cheap. You, you might need to find thousands of students, you might need to be super good at SEO, et cetera. And so often a lot of the advice that I give on the show and a lot of the uh, patterns that I see are like people who do make it big actually are kind of the opposite of both of you two and end up charging quite a lot. You know, and I, I think it's not aligned with the mission of sort of educating the world, <laughs> but it is aligned with their mission, I think, for them of finding some people to help and basically achieving like some sort of amount of freedom so that they can then you know, do whatever they want to do. That's their mission after that. Yeah, one of the one of the most interesting trends that I see a lot, a huge amount right now in technical education across a lot of different subjects, are people that were consultants, then created an online course, distributed through a Udemy so they didn't have to worry about the marketing, made a solid amount of money, and then were able to shed the consulting. Because teaching, if you can pull it off, it can be higher, higher ROI. And those courses don't have to be in the thousands. They can be, I mean, Udemy discounts heavily. They can be in the 50, in the less than $100 range. And for professional education that's high quality, that isn't an extraordinarily high sum. Yeah, if you've got an aspect that doesn't completely scale, like like Daryl mentioned with MOOCs and everything, like, oh, it's video. You know, everybody can just watch the best lecturer in the world teach algebra, and then we won't need all these algebra teachers. It doesn't really work that way. 
there's a whole lot of additional considerations uh, trying to help that specific person. And everybody learns a slightly different way uh, and probably in different world languages and uh, in different settings and at different times, you know, depending on whether they're working or taking care of their kids or elderly relatives. So there's going to be a very specific type of teaching that resonates with any individual person. I do think that, you know, you can leverage these platforms to very quickly build up a sizable audience and then release subsequent courses and, and build a reputation and do all those things. And I, I can rattle off the names of tons of people who've done just that. The Cyber Mentor comes in comes to mind. Uh, he, he does like cybersecurity. Really a good teacher, for example, who, who kind of, I think, started off on Udemy and now has his own platform and everything. And he was just a security consultant prior. All right. David Perel tweet number two is that education will be cheap. Education transformed a decade ago with the explosion of the internet. It's the credentials that are expensive and they're monopolized by universities. We'll look back at the present day and laugh about the predatory and prohibitive cost of college. What do you think about that? My co-founder had a, had a phenomenal insight about a college degree and the future of college degree and the future of college, which is it. So, so there's nothing dramatically wrong or anything in this, in this. And certainly the cost of college is prohibitive and predatory. But there's no one college system. If you're going to Stanford or Harvard, you're not doing it for what you learn in the classroom. In fact, uh, the storybook thing where you drop out of Harvard early to, to, to start Microsoft or Facebook, that's actually the most respected way to, get, to go to Harvard, which is like, they wanted me, but I didn't want them, and I'm going to drop out. That's an entirely different thing, and there almost should be a different word for it than college, um, than uh, if you're going to community college to earn your uh, bachelor's degree, or if you're going to a phenomenal state school. There's multiple different college systems. The question I think for this area, because again, it's not like this isn't this isn't wrong that 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 the cost of college is predatory for a lot of people. But the question is, how long will it take to change? There's an increasing expectation among a lot of politicians and a lot of people who vote for politicians that you need a college degree in order to succeed in life. Now, at the same time, out of a hundred high school graduates, 80 of them are enrolling in college, and of those 80, about 50 are graduating, and of those 50, about 20 are using the degree they got. So the funnel for college is changing dramatically. The average age for a college student is no longer uh, in their early 20s. It's like 26 is the average age for a college student. So the time it's going to take for uh, this period that, that David calls, we'll look back at the present day. We might be looking back 100 years from now, because for the time being, we have a new president who's saying college should be free because getting a college degree increases your lifetime earnings. And it's going to take us a generation before we prove that right or wrong for this generation. So there's a, the, the change underway for the future of the college degree is, is extraordinarily slow, like just disappointingly slow. I will say one of the, one, I mean, something like On Deck is an incredibly interesting phenomenon. So On Deck basically, you could call it unbundles the college education in a lot of ways. So if you think of college education as the community you meet and the access to employers that come to campus and the, the skills you or the, the topics you learn or the ways to you know, the ways you learn how to learn and the specific skills you learn and it packages all that stuff together and then you live in a dorm and then you you know you go into debt for 20 years. If you think of that as the as the college experience on deck by creating communities of people with in industry practitioners doing kind of stop by lectures and stuff uh, is an incredibly great way, and it's succeeding, to create a pathway to industry, which is exactly what college has been doing for 150 years. And so 
the the on deck model says, well, we're not going to do like classroom learning. We're not going to have homework assignments, but you're going to prove yourself in the eyes of people that are going into, you're going to meet everyone who's going into the same career that you want in tech. And then you're going to uh, meet people who are active in that career in five years and more advanced. And they're going to give you some good advice and they're going to inspire you and they're going to keep you going. That model is incredibly interesting. And it, it's, it seems to be working really, really well. They're growing at this massive clip. They're going to do a huge amount of revenue. If you just look at the, if you just do the math, from what they charge on, on on the tin. The issue is, boy, are they charging a lot of money for a lot of that stuff. Now, I think that's solvable um, if they if they if they wanted to and if they wanted to create scholarships and all these kinds of things. But the the, the it's not cheap. Um, it's not cheap to run, it's not cheap to to provide, but it does provide a really good ROI. So it costs a lot of dollars and it provides a lot of ROI. And it is unbundling one of the core elements of of college education. And lo and behold, I bet you that the average age of the people that go to on deck are five years into some career, meaning they're in their late twenties. Probably they're probably pretty similar to a thankful student. They're 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 average age thirty plus or minus a lot of years. Um, thankful students are all over the are, are everywhere on an age spectrum, but they're certainly not fresh out of college. I'll bet you that's what on deck is seeing as well. Um, and I'd be really interested to know because it's growing quite fast and it's doing really really well because it's creating this community. But just keep in mind when you think about the future of college is that there is no single college. The reason I go to Harvard is to get the credential. The reason I go to state school or community college, which are phenomenal schools where people can actually advance their learning, is to get a job. And those are, those are just very different kinds of outcomes. And you'll see the system provide different kinds of solutions for them over time. One of David Perel's sort of related tweets was that community learning is going to make a comeback. So he said the Internet's great for self-motivated learners, but most people need a social group to hold them accountable, which is kind of like what I found for myself being self-employed or, I mean, I'm working at Stripe now, but basically like I don't have a boss. I just do whatever I want. And like, there are things I'm authentically super excited to do and learn, but there are other things where like, I really need like to have a time slot on my calendar to have someone to help me prepare for this. Cause like, I just will delay and procrastinate, et cetera. And so the top schools of tomorrow will build strong communities and alumni networks, just like an Ivy League university does. Quincy, I know you're kind of doing this at Free Code Camp. Like, you've got this massive forum that's super impressive. Like I was looking at like the uh, the stats on SimilarWeb. I don't know how accurate it is, but it was like it gets you know close to two million visits a month, and it looks like you're getting like six hundred posts a week, which means you're getting way more traffic than any hackers is getting, even though we've got more posts. So people are super like engaged in this in this community forum. How do you think community plays a role in education? If you think about schools, I mean they are communities, and communities always kind of played a role, even at like the one room. You know, schoolhouses out in the middle of the, the pioneering West. And it was just a big community effort. And if you go all the way back to like human prehistory, you know, humans lived in tribes and they would pass down knowledge through tradition. So the community aspect and the social aspect and, and to a large extent, the in-person aspect, I'll say it out loud. Online learning is, is not like the, the Holy grail that I think a lot of people think it is. I really do believe that like in-person study groups and, and in-person schools will continue to play a part going forward because of the way that humans are hardwired to learn. So uh, Free Code Camp, what we do online is just a small part of it. Once the pandemic is over, at one point we had about 2,000 study groups around the world. And I had the luxury of being able to like go and visit some of these places in, in Asia and in Europe and stuff. And it was just awesome. And I think that it's going to be like people that get together at like a local startup office or a local library and learn to code together. I think that's going to be a huge part of people finding the extrinsic pressure and support in order to be able to continue to progress their skills. 
Daryl, any thoughts about uh, community and education? Does this feel like a necessary part of education for you in the future or take it or leave it? Absolutely. So for, for adult education, community is probably a majority about a group that can vouch for your skills and expertise. Uh, accountability, sure, is also very, very important. You can get that in other places. The hard part about community is making it trusted in the eyes of whoever is evaluating you. So again, like the, the, the Harvard example, just by virtue of having been accepted into Harvard, you can get a lot of doors open that others will never have open, and that's the Harvard community in a lot of ways. But the, the, one of the things I'm really uh, loving seeing, and I'm helping this company now, is in childhood education and, and, and really like almost pre-K education, sort of two to five and then, and then five to eight, there's really interesting work around how do you create outdoor community to drive learning and social skills better than you can do in a traditional classroom. So a traditional classroom, I mean, it hasn't been around forever. It's been around since like the industrial era. So in a world where you can make trusted teachers within a five or 10 minute walk of young kids, what kind of new types of learning for socialization can you create for those kids in their cities, in their neighborhoods, in their suburbs? Uh, and that's really, really fascinating. Very cool. Well, both of you are titans of education and you've done a lot of cool things. What's your, your advice for people out there who are trying to start businesses in the education space? You know, what, what can they take away from Thinkful and what can they take away from Free Code Camp? Probably, probably the number one piece of advice is um, there's a lot of change happening across lots of different areas of education. If you have a passion for some area, you can make a solid business out of it. And you have to have a passion. It's, it's different than a SaaS business or like an infrastructure piece of data engineering business where I think that you, you in a lot of ways, scratch an itch for a customer. Where, but education brings meaning to both the employees and to yourself and to the obviously to the student. And that, that ha- that's a special dynamic of it. So you have to love that in order to really dig, stick with it. It has a higher chance. One of our investors described the education sector as it had, it's a great mixed metaphor. Fewer grand slams, but more shots on goal. Meaning you don't see, like Chegg might be the largest US-based education company if you just look at the public markets uh, at, about, at about 10 or $12 billion. Uh, the, you don't see 60 or $600 billion education companies, but you also don't see the kind of flameouts and crazy, go, uh, crazy wastes of money and time that go into education. So you can create very solid businesses in education. They don't tend to be as large as in you know, social media or, or in, or in enterprise tech, even that's the, that's the general lean, but there's some fantastic business in education, especially in transformation. If you love it, you can do extremely well and, and, and create a lot of meaning for a lot of people. Yeah. And, and my general guidance for education specifically as a field to go into would be try to start small and prove out your concept and, and, and try to go direct to consumer rather than going direct to institution. I do believe that most of the money is in working with these large institutions, but education is notoriously long sales cycles and it, it's just very difficult to get them to adopt things. But you know, if you can get them to adopt something, you've got potentially a giant industry and you've got a lot of similar potential customers that you can go and sell your solution to uh, because there are like 5,000 universities in the United States and, and God knows how many high schools and in K through 12 kind of school systems and then private schools, Montessori schools, trade schools, like education is a multi-trillion dollar industry for a reason. Uh, it's because everybody spends a huge amount of their life learning and it's the source of their earning potential, their human capital for many people. So I think if you start small, you start with just a a, a few consumers, go straight to consumers, get them to like your product, and then scale it from there. 
that's a that's a winning process. All right. Quincy, Daryl, thanks for coming on the show. Quincy, you want to let us know where we can go to find more about Free Code Camp? If you just go to freecodecamp.org and uh, you click sign in and it's going to give you a whole bunch of information, basically it reminding you how hard it is to learn to code. And then you can opt into my <laughs> newsletter and you'll get like, you'll get an email from me each Friday with some links that are helpful. And Daryl, where can people go to learn more about what you're up to nowadays? Probably just Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash Daryl Silver. All right. Thanks, guys.